we're not even assessed for brain injury and given rehabilitation uh, to help us improve the quality of life. I had to navigate my living with ECT brain by myself with my family going, yeah, the doctor told us you'd get your memory back, so get over it. And my doctor saying, yeah, you're gonna get your memory back, so get over it. And I'm like, I can't even remember my own phone number. So how does that work? <laughs> it was just, it's, it's been, it's a constant battle. So if we have those, if we have all of these patients going forward, getting something that's been safety tested, sorry, I'm getting dizzy. Uh, it's okay. Do you need to take a break? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm starting to get really dizzy. Okay. Um, it's probably best. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm getting really dizzy. It's probably best. You know, I think maybe if I lay down, I do best when my brainstem isn't under pressure. After I've been up for a while, then I start having problems. So I just lay down. Yeah, okay. <sighs> and it's like immediately, I feel Yeah, better. your voice is totally different. <sighs> yeah. So. So are you, are you okay? Do you need to call anybody? No, I'll just, you know, hang out on the floor. It's it's weird to find your new normal. And who would have thought, you know, when you're a kid, my new normal is going to be laying on the floor so that I can think and speak clearly. <laughs> Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, podcast host of Medical Error Interviews. I first became aware of Sarah when she shared a video clip on Twitter of her waiting for an appointment sitting in her wheelchair. Her voice was strained, and she was a bit difficult to understand. But as soon as Sarah was in a horizontal position, her voice was clear as a bell. I immediately reached out to Sarah to learn more about her incredible healthcare journey. Doctors diagnosed Sarah with schizoaffective disorder and gave her antipsychotic medications. When those didn't work, 
they gave Sarah over 160 rounds of electric shock therapy. They put electrodes on Sarah's temples and zapped her with electricity so her brain had a seizure. Doctors also had Sarah on five classes of psychiatric medications, amounting to 37 different combinations. In spite of this, for 12 years, Sarah lived with voices in her head 24-7, telling her how and why to kill herself, all while working toward her master's degree. As Sarah would eventually discover with a proper diagnosis, her psychiatric symptoms were not from schizoaffective disorder, they were from hepatic encephalopathy. Her brain was marinating in toxins. Once Sarah received proper treatment, the voices disappeared. But that's not the end of Sarah's story. All those electric shock treatments have damaged Sarah's brain, affecting her speech, memory, and ability to walk. We had to end Sarah's interview prematurely, as you'll hear. When she was overcome with dizziness, her speech quickly deteriorated, and she had to lie down on the floor to relieve the pressure on her brainstem. Listen to how Sarah's voice changes during all this. Sarah's final words are in the voice she had before electrical brain injury. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. If you're dealing with your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Sarah and a note of caution, as always, that some people may be triggered with Sarah's experience with the healthcare system. Sure, my name is Sarah Price-Hancock and what's the next thing to answer? Uh, consent. And I give my consent to be recorded. <laughs> Great, thank you. I do best with questions that are not multiple. So when you ask me questions, I will be able to answer like the first part of the question, but if you give me a long question, you might have to come back and ask me the same question again. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in sunny San Diego. I am a third generation San Diegan. Wonderful parents. We had our struggles like every family does. Um, one of the things my dad would always say to me when he was starting to get frustrated with my behavior or how I was acting, I was his eldest and I was a daughter, the only daughter. He would say to me, well, Sarah, I've never had a four-year-old daughter before. 
or, well, sir, I've never had a 10-year-old daughter before. <laughs> and I have two brothers, too, so I don't know what he said to my youngest brother. I have, I have parents who did their best to provide a loving, supportive environment the best they understood how. I was very blessed. Okay, so growing up in sunny San Diego with, uh, sounds like very supportive parents with a high level of self-awareness. My dad particularly had a very high level of self-awareness. My mom is a wonderful lady, and I think all girls came not all, but lots of girls can speak to butting heads with their mom. And my mom and I, sure enough, butted heads a lot growing up. But we've reconciled. I consider her one of my best friends now. And so uh, what did you do after high school? I read a little bit about your history. You went off to college. Yes, after I graduated from high school, I went to Rexburg, Idaho, and learned about living in snow, where the snow never lands because it just blows sideways. It's really close to the Teton Mountains, and the weather was like negative 30 Fahrenheit. Um, I went to a little college made famous by Napoleon Dynamite. It's called Ricks College, and it is now known as Brigham Young University, Idaho. I graduated from there, transferred to BYU in Utah in Provo, and then after a semester studying uh, English, I went and served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I learned how to speak Spanish. I served with the people in Texas. And after 18 months, I was invited to transfer into the American Sign Language Program because I was an interpreter at BYU. So I worked for additional two months with the deaf people there. And then I was able to come home. I went back to school and, um, I had grown up with really severe allergies, uh, chronic environmental and uh, seasonal allergies, um, causing asthma, causing um, lots of sinus infections and lots of bronchitis. So growing up, I had been on antibiotics like four to eight times a year through my childhood and teenage years and through my mission. And when I got home, uh, I got pneumonia um, while living in Utah during semester and I was put on another antibiotic. And shortly thereafter, um, within just a couple doses, I actually had my first psychotic break. Oh. Psychotic break. Wow, that must have been yeah. terrifying. Um, it, it was. Uh, initially, it was okay because it was a very friendly person. Um, she was very nice. But then um, I 
was on campus trying to um, find my way and being surrounded by people that I could see that others couldn't and they were like dressed in pioneer clothes like getting their camps together and whatnot on campus <laughs> and um so I was I was hauled off campus and put in the psych unit and I was in um uh street jacket for more than 36 hours that was the scary part because I didn't understand why they were putting me in the street jacket and and then once I was in the street jacket it was a very vulnerable place to be um and then it brought up other issues from my from childhood dramas that I'd had with a babysitter um which because I was feeling so vulnerable, then I started seeing a lot of really bad things because I couldn't move in the street jacket. So it became a very traumatic experience. Wow, yeah, I, I didn't know that that was how your healthcare journey took uh, a big jump. <laughs> A dive. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so it sounds like it was triggered by consecutive use of antibiotics over a long period of time? You know, we didn't put that together at the time. And so um, they put me, they said that initially they said I was um, bipolar with uh, psychosis. And then because my symptoms of psychosis uh, didn't go away with the changes in mood, they decided that I was schizoaffective disorder bipolar type because I had symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar. And then I slipped into catatonia because the medication they put me on, my body could not metabolize. And so at the time they didn't recognize it but they i had begun to um pool ammonia in my system and so my brain was beginning to be marinated in ammonia and i became catatonic and wow. took about four years of being on medications before i became completely catatonic and in those four years i was able to take one class at a time sometimes two and work really hard I was very determined to get my four-year degree it took me eight but I did graduate with my bachelor's wow that's quite the accomplishment considering what you're going through during that period of time <sighs> Uh, so for folks who aren't familiar with some of these uh, medical terms or labels, what is schizoaffective disorder? So schizoaffective disorder is, um, it takes the symptom cluster associated with schizophrenia where you have positive symptoms. They call them positive because they're adding to the person. So. The person hears voices, they see things, they might smell things, taste things, or feel things that other people don't. 
And then they also have the quote negative symptom cluster. How they come up with these terms, I'll never understand. But the negative symptoms take away from the person. So the motivation, a motivation, sometimes the inability to speak or like less speaking less um, or uh, organize your thoughts, organize your your environment those kinds of things and so that's this the schizo part of that affective refers to mood there's lots of different affective disorders some people experience mania where you are very high and elevated um lots of energy and you have difficulty tracking your thoughts because you're thinking so fast people can experience all kinds of mania that include making really rash decisions you know and very having difficulty with insight into finances and choices and whatnot there's a depression which lots of people are familiar with depression um, it's a very low difficulty uh, processing information, difficulty with um, what they called energy and being able to get out of bed or feeling happy or being able to connect emotionally with people. My problem was mixed mania, where you have all of the in energy of the um, mania and all of the feelings of the depression and then I also had all of the symptoms of the schizophrenia so uh, for about 12 years I lived with 24-hour voices telling me how and why to kill myself as my brain was marinating in these toxins and um so it i every time i started believing the voices i would be very proactive in trying to seek out help but lots of people saw that as attention seeking not as trying to prevent my own demise um so i would check myself into the hospital looking for help and then be ridiculed for for asking for help. Um, I was called a frequent flyer. I was called a lot of things by staff, um, probably because they were frustrated that they couldn't, quote, get the medications right, or they felt I wasn't being compliant. But <laughs> if they followed me, they would know I always took my medication as prescribed, always filled my prescriptions on time because I had been trained to believe that I needed those medications in order to survive. And I knew I wasn't doing a very good job surviving. So the, the concept of not taking the medications in my mind was not 
a option because I was struggling so badly and I was told again and again that this was the only way I was going to function. So I would keep going back trying to get on the right cocktail, cocktail of meds and they would put me on something for the psychosis, something for the mood, something for the depression something for the anxiety and something for sleep. So it was five classes of medications and I cycled through 37 different medication combinations as they were trying to adjust and play with the chemicals in my brain to quote, stabilize me with the right cocktail of medicine. Wow, that is just an incredible amount of medications to have to deal with, an incredible number of mental health issues, serious mental health issues to be challenged by, and then factor in being invalidated and denigrated at times. It just seems like so much to have to overcome. It was very difficult. Um, they made the they would try to make the hospital less welcoming so that I wouldn't want to come back. Um, because in their eyes, the only reason I was coming back was because I wanted attention. And I was like, dude, if I wanted attention, I would do something good, like publish a book or or, you know, do something fun, like travel the world or set a record or something. I'm not going to get, I don't, I, nobody wants negative attention. <laughs> but so I would go, I would endure strip searches every time I checked in, which was like every three to five weeks. My dad says that's being very generous because lots of times I would be discharged and within 72 hours I would be back in because I just wasn't functioning. My brain was was marinating and they couldn't recognize that because there really aren't tests. They don't ever do like a cerebral spinal, spinal fluid test for someone who's experiencing these symptoms. They don't really identify encephalopathy very often, um, unless it's very obvious, you know, unless the person starts having seizures or, you know, starts having other major problems. Most, most doctors will just refer the person to psychiatry instead of someone who understands encephalopathy. And even a lot of the doctors who study encephalopathy don't consider hepatic encephalopathy, which is what my original problem was. Um, and that wasn't diagnosed properly until actually two and a half years ago. Um, I had gone through my uh, 12 years of grossness, <laughs> I had learned a lot of adapting skills and I had determined that I needed to change my life because I had sat down with my psychiatrist in 2019, excuse me, and he said, because I had, I guess I'm really getting ahead of myself. <laughs> That's okay. So it was 12 years that you went through all of this grossness where you were sort of like a guinea yeah. pig for these folks. 
Yeah, during that period of time, because none of the medications worked, um, when I became catatonic um, back in 2002, um, they didn't do any blood work or any brain scans to find out why I was catatonic. They just assumed they'd already correctly diagnosed me with a form of schizophrenia um, or psychosis spectrum disorder. And so they just said, well, since she's not responding to medication, we'll give her higher doses of medication. When I didn't respond to that, they said, well, then it's time to do shock treatment. So they gave me bilateral, where they put electrodes on both sides of you. In America, they use 450 volts of electricity to briefly stimulate the brain into a grand mal seizure and they feel that a therapeutic seizure would last more than 25 seconds so if you don't have a seizure that is long enough they will immediately give you more electricity so that you have another seizure and they spaced my treatments out um, three times a week, three times a week, three times a week. Although there was a day when I had two in one day. Because the more seizures you have, the more your brain tries to protect itself and prevent itself from having a seizure. And so they have to keep turning the electricity, the charge, up higher and higher and higher. So my, the, when they're at 100% charge on that particular machine, um, it's, it's uh, I forget the exact number, but it's 0 0.9, I think it's MC, um, which is just below the threshold 1.0 of immediate death. Once they get to the machine giving you 100% charge and you still aren't seizing for 25 seconds, then they put an IV in you and fill you with caffeine so that it pushes your body to the brink and so that when they apply the electricity, they will you will have a seizure. They have to push through the anesthesia to cause the seizure and they also had to push through i will say seizure medication because they use that for mood stabilizers so i had all of these medications in my brain so that i wouldn't have a seizure and then they created the neuroprotective factor and so the first several were at not 100% of the machine strength, but more than 100 of them were at 100% of the machine strength. And then more than 60 of them were also with intravenous caffeine. Okay, so uh, for 
folks who are not familiar with the history of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, um, yeah. can you give us a 60 second history lesson? Sure, it was invented in the Mussolini era, era back in Italy, um, back in 1938. Uh, Italy has since banned it. It was brought to America and they never did safety studies. They never did um, any kind of scientific decision making in terms of appropriate doses or appropriate methods to use. And so there's more than seven variables involved. It is not standardized. It is not regulated and it's never been safety tested. So the people who get it, you'll meet people whose lives they feel it has saved and there you'll meet other people whose lives they feel have been destroyed. And you will hear from other people whose loved ones have actually died um, from shock treatment. Well, I know when I was growing up, uh, there was ECT was controversial. And then it seemed to me about a decade ago, it seemed to be sort of widely accepted again. Um, and then more recently, when I entered the Twitter world, I've become aware of the, the harm and that's how we connected was via Twitter. So you had yeah. this 12 year period where they're dosing you full of different types of medications, trying to find the right medication combo that's gonna work for you. And then they moved into ECT and you said you had over a hundred? 116. Wow. Over yeah. what period of time? I had them for 18 months and from 2000, or I don't know the exact number, I'd have to look at my notes, but it's roughly 14 to 18 months from 2002 to 2004. And then I had them for like 12 to 14 months from 2002 to 2007. Um, I quit against medical advice in 2007. The last time I had it, um, I they always have you sign a quote consent form while you're doing it. They don't tell you about all of the risks. If you look at my consent form, it says that the, the most pressing concern is a headache. That's literally the only thing that's listed on there because I had to tell them what the most cons wor my biggest worry was when signing the consent form. So I always wrote down headache, um, which indicates to me they didn't really tell me all of the risks. And quite frankly, they don't understand all of the risks because they've never done a longitudinal study on people who've had ECT um, to look at neurological factors or even um, addressing um, patient satisfaction. If you look at the patient satisfaction surveys um, from these hospitals that provide ECT, they'll only get, you know, they'll send it out and they'll only get like, I think one of them is 28% uh, response rate. <laughs> and then they say, oh, of the 28% of the people that 
returned their survey, 80% of them are really happy with it. You know, so it's like some of those people could not figure out how to get a stamp onto the letter and probably needed help filling it out in order to return it. Or they were so angered by how their life has fallen apart the minute they saw something from a hospital that gave them the shock treatment it immediately went in the round file so it's just it's it's interesting when you start studying the research to begin asking yourself critically what are they not telling us what are they not telling us what is this what is what are the holes in the methodology like they'll say they'll use the mmse which is a very simple 18 question test for a brain uh dam or brain injury or like commonly used for dementia but what they don't say is that historically that particular test can be passed by people who've had lobotomies. <laughs> and so it's immaterial, you know. <laughs> it cannot be used to like take to school and say, I need academic accommodations or take to work and say, hey, this is the spots I'm having problems and the MMSC is immaterial. So it's not a good measure of the damage actually caused, but it is the most frequently used assessment for people who are having ECT if if they're given an assessment most people are not what was your experience for the first few ECT uh, treatments I wouldn't be able to tell you because I have no memory of the first 36 years of my life um, well, I have lost about 85 to 90% of the first 36 years of my life. I finished ECT when I was 34 years old, but it took an additional two years to create the ability to make new memories. So I do have a lot of journals. I have more than 38 volumes and I read them frequently because they tell me what I've done in my life but unless I've written it down in journal and I've written it recently I cannot really tell you <laughs> specifics about my life. Well there's some sort of uh, foresight going on there to have such detailed journals of your life. Yeah, one of my Sunday school teachers when I was a 12-year-old, she gave me a journal and told me a story about a really neat man named Wilfred Woodruff who wrote in his journal every day. And by the time he was in his 90s, he had hundreds of volumes. And I'd always wanted to be a writer. So I was like, that's me. I'm going to do this. And I'm very grateful because <laughs> I without them I wouldn't know about family vacations or formative experiences because I don't have any memories of them or like of my grandparents on my mom's side I have I have no memories of my grandparents and you know holidays and all of the things that we base 
our life decisions on. We base them on prior experiences or prior memories or all of our relationships and our personal relationships are based on shared memories. So when you're living without a memory um, of the very formative years, it can be very challenging. And I had a massive identity crisis because of the symptoms of memory loss. Yeah, I, I'm. It's hard to fathom and conceptualize what living with that experience of not having the majority of the memory of your life is like. It's just one of those things, unless you've had that lived experience, it's uh, really hard to truly appreciate or understand it. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people assume it's kind of like when you when they have bad memories, someone can prompt them. Oh, you know, show them a picture or a t-shirt or some trinket that they got on a vacation and they'll be like, see, you got this when you were in Rome. And <laughs> when my family goes through like photo albums with me, for me, it's like, plane where it's Waldo you know if I can find my picture then I know I was there but it doesn't trigger any kind of like oh that's right I remember you know I wish it did and it's been a grieving process I used to get very distraught and very emotional about this what I've lost but I've learned that it doesn't help me to get distraught and emotional about it I need to be able to focus all my attention on moving forward because I have a life that still needs to be lived so when did things get even grosser in terms of your health to use your word when did things really go off the rails even more? Off the rails? Well, it was exciting because, um, let's see, two and a half years ago, let's see, how do I put this? In 2015, I, been, I was on my 37th combination of meds, and I'd been on meds for... 17 years and my meds just stopped working and psychiatric meds frequently do it's in general about every five years or so they just don't work anymore and part of that is because the brain has become dependent and the doses have been raised to as high as they can and then you have to try a different bracing mechanism to kind of restructure and re-get everything to work in the right way. And so I was, I had just been married. I had actually just graduated with my master's. I was in a full-time employment and suddenly my meds stopped working and I was scared spitless because I didn't want to freak out my husband. He'd never seen me when I was really symptomatic. And I didn't want to lose my job. And I didn't want all of my colleagues to have this impression of me having major serious problems because I'd worked so hard to establish a reputation as a professional. And I also thought of my family because 
finally I was starting to rebuild bridges that had been burnt when I was so acutely symptomatic. And so I was nervous. <laughs> That's very minimizing <laughs> what I was, but I was scared spitless is what I was. And so a friend of mine had been trying to share with me information on micronutrition. And I'm a scientist at heart, so after putting her off for 18 months telling her, well, I'll see how you are in six months, I'll see how you are in six months, I realized 18 months later when she said, Sarah, you've been putting me off, but look, I'm still healthy, you need to look into this. And so she gave me the research, which included randomized control trials and just really solid methodology. And I was like, wow, maybe I could do this. So I took it to my psychiatrist and together we worked on a taper plan. Psychiatry is not prepared to taper people off of medication. Sorry, Sarah. So, uh, so you yeah. had a friend saying, try these micronutrients. And then you had yeah. your psychiatrist uh, trying to wean you off the medications after they stopped working. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to put me on for a medication, and I was like, well, before we go down that road, can we just try this micronutrition in addition to the meds I'm already taking? And so we did. And after three weeks, it started feeling cognitively weird and talked to the business that had sold me the micronutrients and they'd been carefully track helping me track my symptoms and they said you've reached the point where we believe you are now over medicated so you need to go talk to your doctor about tapering because your brain is starting to be able to function in a way it hasn't in a while and so you won't need the medications as much and I was like, well, that's interesting. I've always been increased in my doses, never taken down. So we started, you know, discussing things. And, and then he, <laughs> he says, well, you are 50 milligrams over the FDA limit for this particular antidepressant. Maybe we'll cut 50 off right there and start with that. I never understood withdrawal until I started getting my meds tapered by someone who didn't understand tapering. <laughs> it was a very scary process. My brain was so used to being structurally supported in its function that removing those supports really caused problems. I will not go into all of the withdrawal issues that I had, but we learned to support my body by supporting it enzymatically. So I used a lot of amino acids. Uh, I used a lot of, specifically, I used a lot of protein isolate to support my blood sugar and support the enzymatic process during withdrawal. And when I remembered to systematically do my shakes every 90 minutes to two hours, I was able to actually really function pretty well. 
Um, but when I would forget to do the shake because I was feeling too good in the moment or, you know, I wasn't in a place where I could make it, um, then I would deteriorate very fast. And I got to the point where it was just really gnarly, but I knew that I needed to keep doing these shakes. And I had a friend that was actually living in Canada and she had a doctor who was giving her IVs of amino acids because she was going through this process of having been on meds for more than her for her 20 years. And she was getting relief from using amino acid IVs. So I started looking for a doctor that could provide amino acid IVs. And I found Dr. John Humiston. He uh, recognized the symptoms of withdrawal that I was experiencing. By that time, I was actually um, 18 months off of medications. And he told me, we need to get your diet in line. We need to get your gut healthy before we can do these amino acid IVs. And I was like, dude, food's never affected me. It's never helped me. It's never hurt me. Don't worry about it. But then he had me start tracking things and he cut very specific things out of my diet. He cut all of the fermented foods, all of the sprouted foods. He cut nuts, he cut dairy, he cut just a whole swath of food out of my thing because he'd recognized that I'd had all of those antibiotics growing up and his firm belief was that my symptoms were caused by a candidal overgrowth in my liver and that he he believed that I had essentially hepatic encephalopathy and so I began cutting out like I just went home and cleared everything out of the kitchen that didn't adhere to this new diet I had to get out rid of everything that had malted barley flour in it. I couldn't use any vinegar. It's just like so many things. I basically had to become a pioneer and cook everything from scratch. <laughs> but within three days, within three days, the psychosis I was experiencing left and I haven't had it since except for once when I was put on another antibiotic. Um, but wow. again, so yeah. that's pretty incredible. So there was an 18 yeah. month period where you managed to taper off all of those medications. Yeah, I tapered you're... off all of the meds and then I got a kidney infection. So they put me on an antibiotic because you have to save your kidneys and that within this by the second dose i was being followed by uh someone that i knew was dead <laughs> and being talked to by them and given being given instructions by my dead ancestor <laughs> so <laughs> it was just like wait a second what's going on here and i then i started you know with all the weird thoughts and all the, the people were after me and everything and by the third dose i was pacing frantically pulling my hair out really i was nonverbal. i was shaking i was sweating 
and my family took me to the ER. I knew I did not want to go back into the hospital because I didn't want to get put back on meds because I just tapered off everything. <laughs> and so I had learned that I needed to occupy my brain with something systematic. And so I began folding paper, tearing it, folding both pieces, tearing those. I just had to do something very basic, very structured. And by the time the psychiatrist came into me, uh, he saw these teeny tiny pieces of paper and he's like, so what's going on? What are you doing? And I said, well, I was seeing things. I was hearing things. I was thinking that you had cameras in the vents watching me, but I realized my brain is just on fire and I need to rein it in. And he looks at me, he's like, I've never seen anyone do that before you know, tell me more. I said, well, I'm faculty at San Diego State University. I teach in the clinical classes for psychiatric rehabilitation and recovery. And this is one of the strategies I would teach people who are dealing with false beliefs and, and voices that are distressing. You have to be very systematic and doing something very simple to redirect your brain. And he's like, well, you did a good job. You can go home. <laughs> And it was the first time I'd ever been put in the ER and let, walked out that same day for the psychosis. So I forget where I was going with that story. But. Yeah, I'm just trying to pick my job off the ground because everything <laughs> that you say is just so shocking and compelling and disturbing and, and hopeful too to, yeah. to be able to figure out that, uh, you know, a strict diet change could have such a huge impact on mental health. It was really interesting. I never knew that um, we have we have naturally occurring yeast in our stomach. It's supposed to be there. It helps ferment our food. And when it ferments our food, it actually poops and farts out 20 different alcohol byproducts, which in small amounts is not a big deal. But when you start having too much of the yeast or the fungal overgrowth, uh, depending on the stage that the biome is in, then you have a lot of byproducts. And that goes, that also goes for bacterial byproducts in your gut. You want to have a healthy balance of, of bacteria and yeast and fungus in your gut, because when you don't, then these byproducts begin producing too much of you know, acetone, acetate, these different alcohols, and then you really start marinating your brain. It can cause a lot of behavioral problems. It can cause a lot of um, thought problems, anxiety, sleep problems, even autoimmune responses, because your brain and your body are just fighting to maintain some kind of stability, having problems doing so. So when I found the right doctor, he identified this, put me on antifungal medication, and within three days, all of my psychiatric symptoms were gone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> your, so, your face is in, yeah. so I'm thinking, trying to think of how I would feel having learned that a strict diet change and some antifungal meds could have prevented all of the horrible things that you had to go through 
Oh. Yeah, I try not to let myself dwell on that because I basically lost 17 years of my life. I missed out on getting married at a younger age. Um, I missed out on having kids, missed out on working, gaining and retirement, um, missed out on family activities and I caused a lot of strife and hardship on my family, uh, both emotionally and financially. Um, but I really, while I recognize that those bad things and hard things happened, when I allow myself to dwell on them, then I can pull myself into the gravitational poor me pit and really have problems doing that. So I have to work really hard at refocusing on my gratitude and on my here and now to really focus on on where I am today and what I can do in the future to help prevent this from happening to other people. Mm, so making meaning. I have to make meaning from my experience because it's the only thing that I can do to um it's what i take my uh i take those that sense of injustice that sense of oppression that sense of being misunderstood misjudged uh judged harshly um i have to polish my experience and i have to use it for good so that i don't feel that what i went through is in vain i want it to have purpose i need it to have meaning so that i can so that i can make sense of what i've been through so in terms of the narrative of your story here you do the strict diet you lose the psychiatric symptoms you're off all of the psych psychiatric meds and yeah. then what happens in your life i've been doing that strict diet now for two and a half years i still have to do it i i was on antifungal medication for a long time like 18 months because i'd had an infection for basically a long time <laughs> So I still take things that help me with my gut and I still take, you know, I still adhere to the very strict diet. But about seven and a half years after I had shock treatments, after my last round, uh, my last treatment, I began experiencing a kind of a worsening of neurological symptoms I'd never experienced in that severity before I began having problems where it was like I would feel muscle twitches um, they call them fasciculations I would feel um, um, I would just fatigue easier and easier I began having problems with my voice I began having problems with dystonia where my muscles contract really hard especially in my neck and when and I began having problems getting really dizzy when I was exposed to a lot of um, visual stimulation or auditory stimulation so in the car um, 
in this past April, I was driving and I drove for 45 minutes because I drove all the time. I was my family's designated driver because my family doesn't like driving in traffic. <laughs> and so I drove all the, all the time um, and I drove 45 minutes. And by the time I got to my destination um, at a university to teach, I was so just, I had a very difficult time standing to get out of my car. And I began having problems where I started having weird muscle contractions on one side of my body. And I didn't recognize that I had overstimulated myself with all of the movement of the driving and listening to my favorite podcast and those kinds of things. Um, and so then I, I was actually just signing the contract uh, to be a guest speaker. And then I drove to my doctor's appointment, which was um, 50 minutes in a different direction. And by the time I got there, something happened. Um, we're still not really sure what happened, but I began having this problem where I would have complete contractures on one side of my body with different direction. And then it would, I, then I would feel electricity down my sternum. I would have diaphragmic paralysis. Then I would begin to be able to breathe again and the symptoms would go over to the right side. And then I would have contractions on, on the right side, making my body go in strange directions and it went back and forth for the next four hours it was really intense at first and then they began getting smaller and smaller and more and more spaced out but four hours later I was still experiencing this and I've had that happen to me twice so far I began, my doctor began referring me out to neurology and I began going to lots of different neurologists. Um, and the hard thing is when they hear that I have a history of shock treatment, then suddenly the orders for their tests don't get placed and the orders for the brain scans and for the muscle electricity EMG scans and those kinds of things aren't getting ordered and instead I'm referred to another neurologist from that neurologist and that neurologist hears me, sees my symptoms, looks at my medical history and refers me to a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. I'm now on my seventh neurologist. I have become essentially an iatrogenic hot potato. And I say that because iatrogenic means it was caused by medical treatment. And I really believe these neurologists recognize that. And so they're referring me again and again. Finally, I found a functional neurologist, which their medical training is first in chiropractic. And then he went on to an additional two years in neurology. And he did what's called a, a VNG, which is a video nystagmography or something like that. 
where they put these big goggles on you and the goggles have cameras on them that measure your pupil size and whether or not your eyes are tracking at the same speed and they put these on you and then they move dots in front of you they move them this way they move them that way and it's supposed to be like a 45 minute test they do a variety of different things they do them with you with you looking at them and then they do you like with the, your eyes, they put the thing over the front so you can't see anything, so you're in complete darkness and have you move your eyes and do the same thing back and forth or look back and forth between your fingers or, you know, something imagined. Um, and the strange thing is they were able, able to create a concussion response because uh, at the end of being stimulated by all of this my one pupil was just huge and um my doctor was like okay we haven't finished the assessment yet but we're finishing it you're gonna come back later and do it because we need to let your brain rest um so that was just i hadn't i'd never really i you know nine years ago or a decade ago when i met my first uh i guess it wasn't my first i met a a brain injury specialist when i was trying to go back to school and she saw me sitting there with my with my sunglasses in her office and she said why are you wearing sunglasses i said i don't know but when i them off i get real headache she said oh you have a brain injury i said no i had shock treatment and she's like, uh, shock treatment, you have brain injury. <laughs> and I was like, no, my doctor told me it's not a brain injury. He said this would go away. And she's like, uh, well, okay. Um, but I found since then I began researching and one of the neurologists that was very outspoken about ECT, he was a neurologist in Berkeley who testified before the New York Assembly saying that it uses the force of the electricity is uh, to cause a grand mal seizure in general is 100 joules of electricity. And that's the equivalent electrical force of dropping a 73 pound, so in metrics that'd be I looked this up, I wrote it down, 30 uh, kg kilograms uh, onto the brain from a foot above it, and that is uh, 33 centimeters. And so if you think of it in terms of that, you know, that's 116 times. So essentially, I have a repetitive head injury. And I have developed a lot of the bulgar type symptoms that you see in people who have motor neuron disease. Um, motor neuron disease has basically, I think it's four risk factors, five risk, let's count them, <laughs> of um, five to 10% of people who have uh, some form of like ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, they get it because of genetics. Then you also have people who have toxic exposure. 
you uh, people with a history of electrical injury, uh, developed motor neuron disease, and people with a history of repetitive head injury, developed motor neuron disease. So that's four uh, risk factors that can contribute to motor neuron disease. And I don't have the genetic component, but I have the other three. <laughs> so I've been able to connect with, because um, my neurologist is like, well, I believe that you probably have a conversion disorder because you're not happy about your ECT experience. And I was like, oh, okay, that doesn't really explain the problems breathing or the problems uh, with too much saliva, the problems speaking, the problems thinking, the problems walking, the problems with my heart having, you know, changing rapidly weirdness. And, and finally, I found a good uh, GP who is starting to order some of these tests that the neurologists won't order so that I can take them back to my neurologist and say, now, what do you think of this? You know, because we need to have solid quantifiable data because they're not, they're not believing me. Because the ECT research is constructed such that they don't talk about electrical injury. They don't, they never attract patients for longer than six to nine months. They did one study, um, that did track patients for six to nine months, but it was focusing on cognition and delayed electrical injury, generally depending on how much electricity the person was exposed to and how old they were when they were exposed. And some of the other factors, they um, delayed electrical injury happens about uh, two and a half to 10 years after the fact. And mine developed seven and a half years after my last treatment. So, and I've deteriorated since then. So, so uh, how can you definitively make the link between the motor neuron symptoms you experience now with the ECT if there's this big space in between and it doesn't sound like there's a lot of research yeah. looking longitudinally. Yeah. Well, the obvious answer is to look at the research on low voltage electrical injury and delayed electrical injury from low voltage electrical injury because they've studied a, quite a few people who've been exposed to low voltage electricity. When I say low voltage, I mean less than a thousand volts. And so evidently when you're exposed to like a lightning strike that cause electrical injury cause, has two uh, different components. They have the immediate effects. So like in my case, there was the profound memory loss, executive functioning problems, balance issues, you know, those running into doorways because you don't recognize where your body is, those kinds of things. Uh, problems with aphasia and f word finding and problems remembering a line long enough to read the next line, those kinds of problems. 
But then they've also begun realizing over the past decade that a lot of people exposed to electrical injury are having delayed electrical injury is what they call it. And so that, if you look at the research and delayed electrical injury, it's uh, a lot of it is these motor neuron problems. And actually, it's very fascinating to me that they've been able to somehow segregate these two things because when you think of electrical current it is responds to natural law you know it doesn't respond to to benevolent intent <laughs> just because you don't want to cause injury to a human cell you know blessing it or something before you stick an electrode on it it's not going to change how the human cell responds and so it's just been fascinating to me that somehow this research has been siloed because it is so apparent when you begin looking at the electrical injury uh the research on delayed electrical injury and you begin talking with people in these forums of ect survivors who are on a spectrum of my life and my trajectory. Um, a lot of us do have the speech problems, the swallowing problems. We develop the problems with dystonia. And once our bodies have just been so tired of being dystonic, then we begin having problems with with the fatigue and the other problems that develop where you just, you know, you drop things because you no longer have the ability to hold them. And, and it's, we're on a spectrum. I, kn I know at least four people right now who have a history of ECT who are, are in that, in that same spectrum that I am. Um, so it's, it needs to be studied. It's something that's not studied. It needs to be connected. I've created an annotated bibliography connecting all of the research between the low voltage electrical injury and delayed electrical injury and shock treatments. Um, and it's something that I, I need to I need to publish eventually about it because it needs to be connected that we our our bodies are having problems because our our doctors are siloing their research and not connecting dots among themselves because each specialty is assuming that their organ that they specialize in isn't connected to the rest of the body and that's just not the case you know <laughs> so it's it's we we can't have all of these siloed research uh you know, by siloing our research and becoming so specialized in so many things, we are we are excluding very important data that needs to be, you know. I I would have never honestly even thought the the neurological problems I was having had anything to do with the shock treatments, except the one of the people I know who's also having these symptoms is she was forced into retirement after ECT, but before ECT, she was actually a trauma nurse, trauma level two nurse. 
if I remember right, which doesn't mean much, but she, she was a trauma level two nurse. And when she began hearing my story, she's like, Sarah, you need to look into electrical injury. You have to look at electrical injury. And so I began looking at that research and I was like, dude, I was never warned about any of this when they gave me my informed consent. <laughs> so, and then recently, um, just this past, I guess a year ago, this past October, uh, they had a lawsuit against the manufacturer of the ECT device. One of them, there's several manufacturers, but... Um, and when they had this, uh, they actually ended up settling out of court. But shortly thereafter, um, the manufacturer published an update to their user manual. And in buried on the fourth page, they now list four risks associated with, per, or excuse me, seven risks associated with permanent brain damage and permanent memory loss. So, um, we need to update all of the informed consent at, you know, internationally. We need to let patients know about, you know, the risk of permanent memory loss, the risk of permanent brain damage, the risk, you know, a lot of people don't, don't take these risks very seriously. They don't study them. Um, and so they don't inform their patients about them and they minimize the risks because they don't see it in their own practice, forgetting that because it's not standardized and it's not regulated, every single doctor who gives it does it differently. So doctors at other hospitals will have different outcomes than they have. They've never tracked their patients like longitudinally. So they're not, you know, the, the inpatient doctor that gives the treatment isn't going to be following up with their patient five and ten years later so they're not going to be seeing the same kinds of effects that that the survivors are seeing among themselves and that's actually why i created an international petition and this petition addresses uh, updating the informed consent updating the core competencies for the doctors uh, trained and certified to give uh, shock treatment. It addresses um, doing pre-assessments and post-assessments and then longitudinal tracking of these patients. Because at this time, you know, a lot of people like myself, when we begin having these cognitive problems, we're not even assessed for brain injury and given rehabilitation um, uh, to help us improve the quality of life. I had to navigate my living with ECT brain by myself with my family going, yeah, the doctor told us you'd get your memory back, so get over it. And my doctor saying, yeah, you're going to get your memory back, so get over it. And I'm like, I can't even remember my own phone number. So how was that? You know, <laughs> oh, you use speed dial too much. I'm like, yeah, how does that work? <laughs> just it's it's been it's a constant battle so if we have those if we have all of these patients going forward getting something that's been safety tested sorry i'm getting dizzy uh it's okay you need to take a break <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sorry i'm starting to get really dizzy okay um probably this 
Oh wow, yeah, I'm gonna roll to the end. probably best too. Okay, you do what I'm you need sorry. to. No worries. Do what you need to do. Um, just send me an email a little bit later and let me know you're okay. Or Twitter me because we're on Twitter. If you can shoot me an email, I will remember to respond. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll put it on me, not on you. <laughs> okay, I, I want you to go take care of yourself, Sarah. So okay. we'll connect soon. Okay. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being no able to share my story because it doesn't need to be shared. Absolutely. And we're not done yet. Um, but Sarah, are oh, you okay? Um, should yeah, I not I'll let be... you off the line? You know, I think maybe if I lay down. Okay. Because um, I do best when my brain... I do best when my brainstem is under pressure. Yeah. And sitting, sitting after I've been up for a while, then I start having problems. So I just lay down. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> and it's like immediately. I feel yeah. Better. Your voice is totally different. <sighs> yeah. So. So are you, are you okay? Do you need to call anybody? No, I'll just, you know, hang out on the floor. <laughs> I'm so familiar with that. I've been on the floor of airplanes and airports and... <laughs> it's, it's weird to find your new normal. And who would have thought, you know, when you're a kid, my new normal is going to be laying on the floor so that I can think and speak clearly <laughs> it's absurd <laughs> but when i did the research looking at like neuropathology of the animals that they tested you know in the autopsies that they did back in the 50s 40s and 50s all of the animals and uh, had actually compressed brain stems um when they did the autopsy after ECT. So, you know, my symptoms actually are very consistent with the initial animal studies. And they're consistent with what you expect to see in a human who has those kinds of issues. Um, you heard of cranial cervical instability and let me know if you wanna let me let you rest because we can easily pick this up later. Yeah. Um, I actually just recently heard of someone uh, who, oh, who is a history of mold exposure, who has cranial cervical instability. Jen Brea. Yeah. And I actually do have a history of mold exposure um, because building where I was doing research at state actually has a history of flooding and has a bad roof. And then when I came home from my vacation, I'd actually left my air conditioner on in my little apartment and the condensation tube had clogged and we had a water bulge in the paint. And then the apartment manager, it took them three weeks to get the the wall replaced and the carpet 
and everything. And so we had, I had a pretty gnarly mold exposure. So, you know, for me, all of the symptoms I experienced it because you can't really isolate any of the things I've experienced because as humans, our body keeps the score, right? Our body is constantly influenced by what we've been exposed to. And throughout our life, it becomes a cumulative effect. So I will <laughs> send you the link to Jeff Wood. He is patient zero with CCI. Um, oh, yeah? It was because of Jeff's experience that Jen Brea went and had CCI looked into and then subsequently had the operation. Same thing with Jeff. Jeff was bedridden for three years. Wow. Um, and now he's going to the gym and he's pretty much symptom free. Wow. Yeah. The idea of having surgery scares me to death. <laughs> Because I'm allergic. I've I've been so exposed to so many of these GABA uh, drugs that I've developed some pretty acute uh, respiratory responses when I'm given uh, anesthesia. Yeah, even like lidocaine or novocaine uh, will trigger a phrenic nerve malfunction and then paralysis and it'll look like I'm having convulsions but I'm actually just um, my nerve that nerve that phrenic nerve is malfunctioning so I just my poor body I'm doing the very best I can but I'm only 44 and I'm having a lot of problems I'm doing the very best I can I don't doubt you at all so that's how my interview with Sarah ended, her lying on the floor. Sarah did manage to get up and a few weeks later, we met again to record more of her healthcare experiences and advocacy efforts to bring regulation and standardization to shock treatment. Tune into part two to hear how Sarah survived shock treatment, copious psychiatric medications, and a brain marinating in toxins. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. And please leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. If you're dealing with your own experience with medical error or living with complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.